All kids need is a little help, a little hope, and someone who believes in them. Magic Johnson. Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Welcome back for another round here. Uh, my name is Bronson Wilkes. I'm the founder and host of the Build the Life You Want podcast. And uh, today we're talking about helping children succeed, what works and why by Paul Tuff. Paul Tuff, he, he's spent his entire career uh, trying to understand why there's a gap in academics for children, for like underprivileged children, people who grow up in uh, impoverished communities and things and why their academics are so much worse than children who grow up in more privileged communities and uh, how to narrow that gap. Now, I think the principles that he teaches in this book can easily be applied to many other areas of our lives or even as parents. So, you know, my children are growing up in a pretty privileged neighborhood with well-off parents and things like that, very engaged. We have the privilege of homeschooling them if they choose to, things like that. So this helps me understand how I may be able to help other communities and children who are you know, less well-off than my own, as well as what things make children tick and what things help. Okay. So uh, interesting book, Helping Children Succeed. And Paul Tuff, he's, he's spent many years in this, this industry. So let's jump in. He initially starts out the book talking about the academics, but he he also says that a child's uh, academic success is highly correlated with non-academic skills such as perseverance, conscientiousness, self-control, and optimism. Right? These play a major role in a person's success at every level of life, in school and in jobs, etc. And he goes into like, well, that's interesting. Like if those are the things that matter most, are our schools set up appropriately to teach those? Who's teaching those? How do children even learn those? Like uh, those are interesting concepts, right? And so they started following teachers and tracking some of these things. And they found out that some teachers instill these behaviors better than others. In fact, one teacher, he says, is a chess coach and used chess as an opportunity to instill these attributes into children. And all the people that are under her watch for a period of time do better in all other areas of their academics. And so uh, how do you teach those things, right? He's talking about this woman that teaches chess and he says her her main pedagogical technique was to intensely analyze their games with them talking frankly and in detail about the mistakes they had made helping them see what they could have done differently something in her careful and close attention to her students work changed not only their chess ability but also their approach to life so analyzing breaking down and then teaching right later on in the book i'm going to give you four principles that I think are highly correlated with what she's doing here. 
So rather than consider non-cognitive capacities as skills to be taught, I came to conclude it's more accurate and useful to look at them as products of a child's environment. There is certainly strong evidence that this is true in early childhood. We have in recent years learned a great deal about the effects that adverse environments have on children's early development. And there is growing evidence that even in middle and high school, children's non-cognitive capacities are primarily a reflection of the environments in which they are embedded, including centrally their school environment. Now, the reason their environment matters, well, it's multiple things, right? And and that's what makes this difficult is it's difficult to isolate certain things when you're looking at data and studies, right? Some things we know. First of all, when a child is stressed out, maybe they don't feel enough security because their parents are gone or they only have one parent and that parent has to work two jobs or maybe their parents are not doing well mentally and and physically, right? Uh, There's a variety of reasons that a child might be in an impoverished situation. And when those insecurities are ever present, the child has a higher level of stress. And when stress is high, you have cortisol levels that remain high. And essentially, these kids are living in a state of fight or flight. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but I did do an episode on this exact thing, cortisol being high. So go back and find that one. It's called The Effects of Cortisol in Response to Stress. And it goes into more detail on the science of what's happening to your body. But essentially, cortisol will spike under stress to give you that fight or flight because you need to react quickly in a different way, right? Physically, you want to get out of there or you need to fight or something. But when it remains high, it causes all these different problems. And you can go check that episode out to understand those. Kids are growing up with that. Other things that contribute, right? Parents who are well off tend to spend more quality time with their children just talking, given uh, received type interactions, right? Even when kids can't talk, parent says something, baby, you know, jiggles around, stomps her feet, says nonsense words, and mom or dad responds like, yeah, yeah, you're doing it right. Or yeah, that is a cat. You like that cat. Oh, you're feeling mad, right? So you're constantly narrating the scene for them. They also read books and have more books available, things like that, right? When parents are close by more frequently, children feel comfortable and confident, right? So those things contribute, and there's many, many more, but there's a few. He says, if we want to improve a child's grit or resilience or self-control, it turns out that the place to begin is not with the child himself. What we need to change first, it seems, is his environment, So researchers have concluded that the primary mechanism through which children's environments affect their development is stress, which I kind of mentioned on. He says, adversity, especially in early childhood, has a powerful effect on the development of the intrinsic stress response network within each of us that that links together the brain, the immune system, and the endocrine system. The glands that produce and release stress hormones, including cortisol. Especially in early childhood, this complex network is highly sensitive to the environmental cues. It is constantly looking for signals from the environment to tell it what to expect in the days and years ahead. When those signals suggest that life is going to be hard, the network reacts by preparing for trouble, raising blood pressure, increasing the production of adrenaline, heightening vigilance. Even more ominously, stress can affect brain development. 
high levels of stress, especially in early childhood, hinder the development of a child's prefrontal cortex, which is key. I, I wonder how much of that, I'm just thinking of this now, I wonder how much of that is associated with sleep. Maybe when children are, are stressed out, they don't sleep well. Maybe when their parents aren't available or attentive, they're not being put to bed timely or have to get up with strange hours. You know, that book sitting here behind me, Why We Sleep. He talks about the development of the prefrontal cortex and the the washing over the prefrontal cortex that uh, REM sleep does to develop each part of the brain, but the prefrontal cortex in particular is a decision-making and emotional center of the brain. And uh, I wonder how much sleep has to do with it. This section's under parents. He says, but one of the most important findings of this new cohort of research is that for most children, the environmental factors that matter most have less to do with the buildings they live in than with the relationships they experience, the way the adults in their lives interact with them, especially in times of stress. The first and most essential environment where children develop their emotions and psychological and cognitive capacities is the home, and more specifically, the family. Beginning in infancy, children rely on responses from their parents to make sense of the world. The serve and return thing that I was talking about, right? Parents narrating the the environment, controlling emotions. When a child has a, a tantrum or a fall apart or is scared or whatever, and mom or dad can sort of name the emotion and calm them down and stay calm themselves, children take that on and they, they go, oh, well, I guess we're safe. I guess we're good because mom and dad seem to be good. On the other hand, if parents freak out when a child freaks out, now we're all insecure. Now I'm correct. Like I should be freaking out. I should be scared. And this is a scary world, right? <laughs> Confidence is low. Research has shown that when parents behave harshly or unpredictably, especially at moments when their children are upset, the children are less likely over time to develop the ability to manage emotions. So, Children who end up going to school after their parents behave like, you know, underdeveloped children or parents, uh, they, they have a hard time. They, they're disruptive. They're freaked out. They're under stress. All right. So we're going to skip to an interesting study. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which was conducted in the 90s by Robert Anda and Vincent Felitti. So what they did is they took this large group of like 17,000 patients and they went back and looked at trauma and significant events and they defined those events, et cetera. So what they found was a startling strong correlation between the number of categories of trauma each patient had endured as a child and the likelihood that he or she had been afflicted by a variety of medical conditions as an adult. Patients who had experienced four or more adverse childhood experiences were twice as likely to have been diagnosed with cancer, twice as likely to have heart disease, twice as likely to have liver disease, and four times as likely to suffer from emphysema or chronic bronchitis. Not crazy. So your illnesses can even be correlated to the way you uh, experienced trauma as a child. Pretty nuts. Another study very similar, but more specific on trauma, like deaths or suicides or things like that. Um, and they gave them scores. And she says, a pediatrician and trauma research in San Francisco found that just 3% of children with an ACE score of zero displayed learning or behavioral problems in school. But among children who had four or more ACEs, 
which is their scoring system, 51% had learning or behavioral problems. So the data is pretty clear on this, right? If, if you experience a lot of trauma, you don't have a lot of good mentorship or security, your parents don't manage their emotions well, they don't teach the child to manage you know, their emotions, these things turn into long-term problems for people. And it's difficult to correct. The later it goes, the harder it is. So this section is under neglect. If we want to try to improve the early lives of disadvantaged children today, there is considerable evidence that the best lever we can use is the same powerful environmental element, the behaviors and attitudes of the adults those children encounter every day. This is the essence of what I want to share and create here at Build the Life You Want. I want to help adults understand how their mentorship matters, how your personal success matters in the lives of the community around you, and that the more people that can interact with healthy, well-rounded, educated people that are intentionally living their lives to do the best they can and serve the community with the best information they can get impacts people in a dramatic way. It's not just a kindness thing and, you know, you get bonus points in heaven or whatever it is you count. This matters to the future of the children that are currently in your stead, right? In your neighborhood, in your family, in your home. So the better you can be as a parent, a grandma, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, a church leader, whatever, wherever you find yourself interacting with young people, it has major impact. Under attachment, you've all heard of attachment disorders, right? This is part of why many researchers now believe that the most promising approach to parental behavioral change may be that third category interventions that target the relationship between parent and children. In the 1950s, researchers in England, Canada, and the United States discovered that when infants experience warm, attentive parenting in the first 12 months of life, they often form a strong, attuned bond with their parents, which the researchers labeled secure attachment. This bond creates in the infants a deep-rooted sense of security and self-confidence, a secure base in the researchers' terminology that enables them to explore the world more independently and boldly as they get older. And that confidence and independence has practical real world implications. A landmark longitudinal study of attachment conducted at the university of Minnesota beginning in the 1970s found that infants who at age one showed evidence of secure attachment with their mother went on to be attentive and engaged in preschool more curious and resilient in middle school, and significantly more likely to graduate from high school. So what's wild is like, at that point, we're not even talking about reading books and, you know, having a high vocabulary or or whatever. They're just talking about being very present with your young babies and being able to uh, give them a secure place to live, right? Attaching, making bonds sets them up for a lifetime of success. Researchers have found, in fact, that most of the achievement gap between well-off and poor children opens up before age five. For most children, the gap then stays pretty steady from kindergarten through the end of school. So how we treat and train children in their infant years and preschool years is critical, and most of it is, is from parents. So you know, there's a constant political talks about 
you know, single family homes, where are all the fathers, where, what's, what's going on and why are we incentivizing single parenthood and all these things. And, um, I don't know the political world all that well and how we're going to fix it there, but I think we can change a lot of this by really educating people on the significant impact that you can have on being present with your child or the significant negative effect you'll have on a child by not being there. There's a whole section on incentives where they actually use tons of money. They spent millions of dollars trying to reward people to do the right things and it didn't work. Uh, external rewards don't ha- have the effect that we <laughs> kind of think they do, you know, cause all of us want more money and want to buy more nicer things. And, uh, we we're willing to put ourselves through a lot of strange things to make more money, but it doesn't actually give us much satisfaction. So when we're talking about little children or parents who have bad financial habits anyway, and things like that, financial incentives don't seem to change their behaviors. They even go into the book drive and the studies that those authors went into, and I've talked about those concepts on my book review of Influencer, uh, where we often destroy morale and intentional uh, growth with external rewards. So they essentially find that external rewards are not the answer to helping children and parents do the right thing. Rather, we need intrinsic rewards, and those are much stronger, much more powerful, and much more satisfying. So he starts moving in the direction of this book of options out there to help train parents to engage with their young children in a better way, to help teachers engage with children in a better way. So we're going to get into some of that. So assessment. Jackson had access to each student's scores on the statewide standardized tests, and he used that as a rough measure of their cognitive ability. Then he did something new. He created a proxy measure for students' non-cognitive ability using just four pieces of existing administrative data. A student's attendance, suspensions, on-time grade progression, and overall GPA. Jackson's new index measured, in a fairly crude form, how engaged the student was in school, whether he showed up, whether he misbehaved, and how hard he worked in his class. Remarkably, Jackson found that his simple non-cognitive proxy was a better predictor than a student's test scores of whether the student would attend college, a better predictor of adult wages, and a better predictor of future arrests. (laughs) So these non-cognitive behaviors seem to be far more important. And those are formed by spending time around good coaches, mentors, and parents, right? People who can make you feel loved, feel welcome, instill self-confidence, challenge you, but not too much, uh, help you understand that you're valued here and that this is valuable for you. So uh, pretty interesting. And to reinforce that, he, he says at the end of this section, he says, for now, at least it may be enough to know that for the students in Jackson's study, spending a few hours each week in close proximity to a certain kind of teacher changed something about their behavior. The environment those teachers created in the classroom somehow helped those students start making better decisions and those decisions improved their lives in meaningful ways. So here is what I mentioned early in the book that ties to to many of these principles that I've talked about. He says, and what made students act in a perseverant way? 
Farmington concluded from the research that the key factor behind academic perseverance was students' academic mindset. The attitudes and self-perceptions that each child and adolescent possessed, she distilled the voluminous research on student mindset into four key beliefs that contribute most significantly to students' tendency to persevere in the classroom. So number one, I belong in this academic community. Number two, my ability and competence grow with my effort. Number three, I can succeed at this. And number four, this work has value for me. If you can instill those four things, someone will will continue to show up, continue to give effort, and continue to grow in any area, right? They're talking about academics right here, but think about sports, think about work, uh, think about gangs and drug dealers and things, right? If someone feels that they belong in that community, that their ability and competence grows with effort, that they can succeed at that, and that this work has value to them, they'll stay. So sports, right? We often see someone who is failing academically, but thriving in sports or someone who's failing in sports and thriving in academics or somebody who, you know, is a dropout, but a successful entrepreneur. They somehow find these four abilities or beliefs in different areas. And so if we want to improve children's academics, well, then we need to instill that there. But of course, academics is only part of the picture. Challenge. The experience of persisting through an intellectual challenge and succeeding despite the struggle is a profound one for school children. As profound, it seems, as serve and return is for the infant brain. It produces feelings of both competence and autonomy. Two of Desi and Ryan's three big intrinsic motivations. And yet most of our schools, especially schools educating poor kids, operate in ways that steer children away from those experiences. Isn't that crazy? Like experiences that challenge a kid, but not too much, help that child grow in confidence, self-esteem, interest, all those things. And uh, this comes on the back of certain schools that are helping children basically determine their own curriculum. So what are you interested in? And then let's go down that road as far as we can. And those children feel challenged by something they're interested in and rewarded by their discoveries and growth, right? Um, So our schools, they're not functioning all that well and they're not set up in a great way. All right, I'm going to share one more thing and then then we'll wrap this up. He says, finally, we need to change our way of thinking. When you spend time reading through the kind of intervention studies that I've written about here, it's easy to get caught up in the specifics of the data, sample sizes, standard deviations, regression analysis, and that data certainly matters. But I also find it useful every once in a while to think about the individual people who conducted these studies, the doctors or psychologists or social workers who went into an orphanage in Russia or an impoverished neighborhood in Jamaica or a high school in Chicago or a living room in Queens and said, in essence, I want to help. I think we can do better. So I hope that's you. I hope it's me, right? We we need to continually find ways to be better mentors and then step in, lean in, help these children grow. Go be a coach. Learn how to coach and then go be a coach. And I don't mean 
learn to be the best baseball coach. I mean, learn the basics of baseball and then go, go teach T-ball. Give these children somebody that they can rely on, that's in control of their emotions, that feels strong and self-confident and is going to instill these behaviors in children. Teach a Lego group or a chess club or a Dungeon and Dragons group, whatever. Get involved. Make sure that children have places to go with secure people. Nothing bothers me more than those coaches that are out there freaking out, losing their mind, teaching kids that a sports game is not a fun place to be, that their coaches can't handle their emotions and that they shouldn't either. You got to be better than that. You got to be the coach that's in control of emotion, instills self-confidence, makes it fun, but follows the rules and gives great effort, right? You got to be those people and teach these kids those same attributes. But here we are helping children succeed. What works and why Paul Tuff, great book. I think it has a lot of interesting studies in there that you should dive into and understand. They not only help understand why, you know, privileged children or, or economically privileged people tend to do better in many areas and, why impoverished children are struggling and it has very little to do with the actual money that's being spent on them more it's it's the interactions with the people around them and so uh keep growing keep improving and sharing with your communities for those of you that want this i will put the book link in the show notes so that you can purchase this from amazon i think it's worth your your time and uh, again thank you guys for listening as always we'll catch you on the next one Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.